1: and welcome back to the squiggly careers podcast and hello if it is your first time if it is your first time actually you'll be i'm missing a voice today i'm normally here talking with sarah about all things squiggly careers sharing all the tips and tools that we think you might need to help you with some of the challenges and opportunities that our careers present for us today but it isn't sarah with me today instead you're going to hear my conversation with lord mark price which was recorded just before lockdown and it was very exciting because i got to speak to lord mark price who among Other things used to be the Managing Director of Waitrose and the Deputy Chairman of the John Lewis Partnership and is now a Lord. So a member of the House of Lords. And also, most importantly for this conversation, he's the founder of an organisation called Engaging Works, which is all about creating happier workplaces. And so it was a privilege to go and talk to him. And it was really exciting to go to the House of Lords. In the conversation that I have with Mark, we talk about the six steps to happier workplaces. And those six steps are, so you know where we're going with the conversation, number one, reward and recognition, number two, information sharing, number three, empowerment, number four, well-being, number five, instilling pride, and number six, job satisfaction. So in the conversation, we'll talk about each one of those in turn, what it is, why it's important and Mark shares some practical things that you can do so you can respond to those areas in your organisation and whether you're a manager or leader or you just care about your happiness at work and the happiness of the people that you work with, there'll be lots that you can take away and put into action. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation and let's get started. Welcome very much to the podcast, Lord Price.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: I would love to start with something that is on your website, uh, which is your philosophy. It's kind of front and center. And I don't see that very often. And I thought when I read it, I thought it was so, so compelling. I'd love to just read it out loud and then talk to you a little bit about where did the philosophy start? Where did it come from and how much has it guided you? So the philosophy is that happiness is the secret ingredient for extraordinary. I don't believe in a dog eat dog approach to business. I believe if people are happy and fulfilled at work, they will go on to achieve extraordinary things for the companies they work for. I believe business is a force for good in society. It has the capacity to create a fairer and happier world. Happy isn't a hippie concept. It is a serious tool for business. The happier your employees, the happier your customers, the happier your business. How long did it take you to so concisely write a philosophy How long have you had it and how much does it guide you in the work that you do now?
2: So I've had that philosophy a long time because in reality, it's the philosophy of the John Lewis Partnership. So the John Lewis Partnership was created almost 100 years ago by an amazing man called and Lewis. And his ambition and my ambition is to make the world a little bit happier and a bit more decent. And what he recognised a very long time ago is that if you look after your people, and your focus is their happiness, then they stay longer, they're more committed, they work harder, they take less sick absence, from which he concluded that customers would get better service, from which he concluded that you'd have a more sustainable and profitable business. And so I spent 30-odd years of my working life in that culture, absorbing not only his philosophy, he made the happiness of people that work in John Lewis the supreme purpose of the organisation. It only exists for the happiness the people that work there. But it wasn't just the philosophy. It was trying to understand how. How, in a very practical sense, do you do that? And what are the benefits? The thing that's given me huge encouragement over the last 20 years is that business schools now increasingly focus on either being customer-centric rather than shareholder return-centric, All the more enlightened now are talking increasingly about the importance of employees and why employee happiness and engagement drives commercial success. And the truth is, Helen, there's a lot of evidence now that says the most successful organisations in terms of having an engaged workforce are 20% more profitable, 20% more productive, have much lower sick absence, have much lower turnover. And a report last year from America said that companies with high level of engagement have on average earnings per share of 134% higher. And so all the evidence says, whether it's causal or not, if you have a happy and engaged workforce, you're more successful. But also, I think it's clearly good for the individual. Mm -hmm. It's good for their mental health. It's good for their success at work. But it's also good for society. Companies that are more profitable and successful pay more money to the exchequer. The country, therefore, has more money to spend on hospitals and schools and roads and the things that we want to spend money on. But it's also good for society in terms of how people feel. So for me, the benefits flow from an individual being happy at work a company getting all the benefits from that, and society more generally. So that's my determination to do what I can to try and make the world just a little bit happier through improving the life of people at work.
1: And I love it when you talk about the happiness from that perspective because some people that might think, oh, happiness is this soft fluffy concept I and mean, when you relate it to earnings per share that is a very unfluffy concept that is a very important concept it also makes me slightly disappointed that when I did my MBA we didn't have a module on like workplace happiness there's such a need and interest in this space that actually I think in academic institutions maybe before people get into the workplace we should have this as a core part of particularly programs where people are Probably going to become managers and leaders, it feels like we should start at that stage as well as influence people when they're in the workplace.
2: Well, you're right. And I think that the slight difference with the word happiness is it was sort of hijacked in the 60s by the hippies and they <laughs> they made it all about flower power. And when you talk about happiness at work, and I talk to HR directors, quite often they say, Oh no, it's engagement. We prefer engagement. But the reality is that the notion of happiness goes back to the Greek philosophers, Socrates talked about the things that make you happy. And he basically said, there are two tiers. There's happiness that you get from success and wealth and owning things. And he said, that's fleeting. He said, but the real success you get is from altruism, helping people, doing the right thing. And then 100 years after him, Aristotle came along and said, I agree with all of that. But every motion of every human is driven by their need for personal happiness. And even when you're being mean to somebody, you're mean to somebody because you think it's going to make you happy, that you can make them unhappy. And so when you start to think that every action of every human is driven by their personal need for happiness, and you start putting that into a business context, you start thinking about, well, I'm going to get more from the workforce if the workforce are happy. Therefore, what you have to do. So as well as embracing the theory, you then get into Well, how do you achieve it? Mm. What what is it really? Because I think it's tangible. I think it's measurable. I don't think it is an airy-fairy concept. that You just go in and you give people cream cakes and everybody's happy or they get a ping pong table. I think it is about far more measurable things that drive engagement and happiness at work. You hear people talk about work-life balance, although you get work and then you have a life, but work's got to be more than that. Mm -hmm. And you've got to help people find more in their work. And if they're not finding it, then you've got to help them find work that they are going to find more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I think that for the generations coming through now, my daughter's generation, I think they do genuinely want something different. I don't think that they're happy with that mentality that, or, you know, it's called work because it's work and Mm. it shouldn't be very good. I think that you have to find a way of stimulating people, which is what the six steps are all about. They're helping people to understand what are the things that drive workplace happiness and engagement.
1: So, Let's get into those six steps, then. So step number one, reward and recognition. I guess it's one of six steps. But often in conversations that we have with people, it seems to come up first. And it seems to be presented as the most important thing for people. But I'm not sure it really is. But it seems to be the thing that people fixate on a little bit that if I'm paid more, I'll be happier at work. And that's almost like the conversation seems to start there. From your research, is pay that important? Is it the first of the six steps because it's the most important or actually, no, it's part of the mix?
2: So Hertzberger summed it up really well when he said, pay only ever minimises discontent. So the truth is, if you're paid 5 or 10% less than you think you are worth, every day it will niggle away at you. If you are paid 5 to 10% more than you think you are worth, you do not run into work and you do not run harder. So people have to feel that their pay is Mm fair, and they need a conversation with their employer about what is a fair rate of pay for what I do. Once you've achieved that, pay stops driving performance by and large and it doesn't add any more to your happiness at work. In our survey, pay's the number nine in terms of importance. Career development's number one. And I think people recognise career development over pay because they know if they develop their career they should earn more pay yeah so it's sort of causal on career development far more important as well is recognition which is why we put it with pay in the UK we are shocking we thank people on average once every four and a half months for doing something well we criticize twice a week oh it's, it's not good it's not good so when I was in Waitrose we gave managers postcards so that they could write quick notes we gave them budgets so they could give wine and flowers to people who'd done a good job. We gave them a budget so if somebody had done something well, they could take their partner out for dinner. But we tried to make it easy for people to recognise and we encouraged good performance. All too often now, what we've become is a culture of criticism. Uh, if Why you look is that, at, do you think? I, I, maybe it makes us feel better that we're criticising somebody else. It elevates us in our own minds. You see lots of it on Twitter And we've forgotten the power of the culture of praising. And so on the website, what we try to do is to be positive. We're positive about happy companies. What we don't do is slate companies that that aren't good. Mm. And then people will gravitate and say, I want to go and look for the the happy companies Mm. to work in. But whether it's an individual or a company, I think that we need to change our mindset. So pay pay mitigates discontent, has to be fair, doesn't drive performance beyond that point where you think you are being paid fairly. Recognition has a huge impact on how you feel about work.
1: So, the second one of the steps to contribute to workplace happiness is about information sharing. And I have personally been quite interested in transparency in organizations. And having worked in Microsoft, I actually saw technology actually contributing to information being shared more. So, when you've got like collaboration platforms like Microsoft Teams or Facebook Workplace or Slack or whatever people are using. I feel that we now have the structures and technical structures for information sharing and transparency to happen. And the thing that might hold it back actually is the cultures. (laughs) So the structure might be there, but maybe the culture of information sharing isn't. What have you learned about creating places where information is shared in a positive way?
2: So I think the first thing to say of all of my six steps, information is probably the single most important. Hmm. Uh, And Speed and Lewis, when he was writing about happiness of the workforce, put information first as well. And the reason he did it is he said you can't be empowered unless you're informed.
0: Mm,
2: Wow. And so it's the precursor really to everything else. And in our survey, what we have is two questions about information. One is about really do you have the information to do your job well? So have you been trained appropriately to carry out your job? Because you will know if people are given a job, and they've not been properly taught how to do it and they keep falling over, they lose confidence very quickly. Mm. The second is about, do you understand what's going on in your organisation? Do you understand your place within it? Do management openly share? And again, I was incredibly lucky through all my working life. The John Lewis Partnership published its figures every week um, so that everybody everywhere knew how everything was going. They knew which shops were doing well and which shops weren't. And Charles Dunstan, Carphone Warehouse Mm. Fame, once said to me, if he could do anything, he would publish every shop's figures every week. But because he was publicly quoted, he said he would find that difficult to do because the city would react on a weekly basis. But more than that, when I ran Waitrose, when we had a board meeting, I would share an edited version of the board minutes with all the 60-odd thousand people that worked in Waitrose so that they could see it. So they knew precisely what the board had talked about and what the issues were. And there were a whole host of other systems for sharing information. There was a weekly magazine where we share information, which a lot of people do. But also the culture was that if another partner, co-owner, came up to you and asked you a question, you'd answer it honestly and openly. And I think if you can get that, if people feel that they're being trusted with information in a culture that's open, It aids their happiness and it aids their engagement. There's nothing worth working in a business where you're saying all the time, well, what are the management thinking? What are they going to do? Are they going to restructure? Is my job going to be safe? What's happening to so-and-so? Will the budget be the same next month? What am I? And so you're always living with this kind of nervousness that the world around you is going to change and you don't know. So if you can take that away by giving people a better understanding of what's happening overall, coupled with the very best you can do to equip people to do their job, then that information sharing breeds happiness and engagement at work.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com
0: slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the third
1: step is about empowerment. And I don't know if this is kind of part of your thinking and research on there, but something that uh, amazing if we're really looking into is the role of psychological safety at work. And I wondered, when, you, when you're talking about empowerment, what has it meant through your work at Engaging Works and what can people practically do to create organisations and environments where people feel empowered at work?
2: So a lot of it is about trusting the individual to take responsibility. I'll give you an example. You have an annual review of performance. There are two extremes of how it can be done. I can either give you a list of things that I want you to do in the year ahead and we meet a year later and I tick off whether you've done them or not and mark you on how well you've done them. And then I give you a list for the next year. That's one way. The second way is that I say to you, have you got on over the last year? What have you done well? What could you have done better? What more support could I have given you? What more results would you have ideally liked? And then looking at the year ahead, I could ask you the same set of questions. You know, what are your ambitions for the year ahead? What do you want to achieve? What training might you need? What resource do you need? What support do you need from me? In one of those, you become the owner of what you're doing. and the other, you're a slave, a captive. And so that whole notion about trying to give people responsibility, even when there's a task to do collectively, it's at an early stage saying to people, how should we do this? Because there are always more than one way to do it. What support do you need? How do we achieve these things? That, for me, is hugely important And is the real difference. If you accept that, then of course you accept people's mistakes. Of course you accept that people do things differently. And it's not about imposing your will or your thought process on somebody else. My dad always used to say, look, if somebody disagrees with you, the first thing you do is you say to them, how have you come to that point of view? What's brought you to think that's the best way forward? And then if you sit and you really listen, it will allow you to do one of two things change your worldview because you've heard something new that's added to your own knowledge bank, or you'll be better able to explain to somebody why you see the world in a different way. If you adopt that attitude at work, that you will have a different point of view than me, I really want to hear your point of view, then I'll explain to you if I have a different point of view why it's different. You move forward, you have consensus. At the boards, if I felt that um, when I was chairing the Waitrose board, if I felt that we were all going to agree I would say to one of my board directors, I want you to put a black hat on. All I want you to do is tell us why we're wrong. I want you to draw out all the negatives in doing that. And if somebody was doing that and felt nervous and I sensed that they were nervous, I would say, I so appreciate you doing this. I so appreciate you putting the other side of the coin. And therefore, if you just accept that everybody's different, everybody's going to try and do things in a different way, then... You will just ultimately get to a much better place in terms mm. of collective agreement and consensus. It might take longer. I would accept if the house is burning, you yell, "Get out!" and you all run out. <laughs> you don't have a debate on it. But on so many issues in business that you know the house isn't on fire, and you do genuinely have the time to sit down and say, "Look, I'm thinking about doing this. I haven't made my mind up, but it could be a good idea. What do you think? Mm. And the minute you do that, you start getting involvement and you start other people taking responsibility for the idea, and you start collectively shaping ideas, and then when you deliver, the whole team can celebrate. So many times the business leader says, right, we're doing this, and everybody goes away and does it, and at the end he says, well, we should all celebrate that we've done this. Well, really, it was them. It was their idea that it's being celebrated. It's not the team's work. And therefore, thinking about how you empower the team so that you can recognise the team, pay the team, encourage the team, it's a different way of thinking
1: and listening to you kind of model out that conversation about objectives. And then the other questions that you asked as a manager, I think was sort of like much more of a coaching approach Do you see that, that kind of manager coaching competency as being something that's important to achieve this empowerment in the workplace?
2: Yeah, and to improve productivity, hugely important. If you are going to be a manager or if you are going to be a leader, the first thing you need is credibility. So you need to be experienced, you need to do the job. And quite often what we do is we promote somebody who's very good at doing the job Mm. and then we move them into a management position. And that individual still feels comfortable doing the job. So what they try to do is do the job through other people. What they don't realise is that what they're trying to do is get those people to work to the level they achieved through coaching and developing them. So at that point, management at that next level all becomes about your ability to be an orator, to be a coach, to inspire people. You know, when you're on the board, when you're in the most senior management positions, it's about your ability to persuade. It's about getting people who you have no control over. You don't control their pay. You don't control their rations to do the things that you want them to do. And that's a completely different skill once again. And I think it can be taught. I don't think that you know, you're know you innately born with it. The other thing in terms of getting your team involved is that One of the great joys in being a manager is being able to celebrate with your team and being able to say, look, collectively, we we achieved this. And in my early days, I always thought that getting the next promotion would be the thing that gave me the greatest happiness. And and you know what? I look back and it, it was never that. It was always what we did as a team opening John Lewis Cheadle when I was the managing director there or and having that opportunity to all sit down together and say that was fantastic wasn't it Mm -hmm. haven't we done some really great stuff together having that humility to recognize it's not about you it's about your team and the team you build and recognize that they're the people that got you to where you get to and I think the more successful you become the more humble you need to become about recognising that it was a whole host of people that got mm. you there, it wasn't just you.
1: I think I, I totally agree about it being about credibility and I also think for management, I also think it's credibility but it's also care. I do think you have to care about people's performance, you have to care about their happiness at work, I think you have to take a personal interest in what makes them tick and so I think if you are in a management role and you don't really care about the people, then I don't, I don't, I think that's not being a great manager
2: Well, that's a brilliant segue into my fourth step which is well-being I've got two favorite quotes from Theodore Roosevelt and one of them is nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care and I don't think you can be an effective leader unless your team and the wider population that you're managing know that you have their best interest at heart And I think that well-being is about physical well-being, mental well-being, and also financial well-being. And long before the NHS, Speed and Lewis had put doctors into John Lewis' branches and physiotherapists and chiropodists, not only because he was philanthropic and he wanted to look after his workforce, but also he recognised the commercial benefits. If you can keep people at work, not at home sick, then you've got to be commercially better off. So what I learned from my time in the John Lewis Partnership is having an organisation that you genuinely believe cares for you, that has a huge influence on your happiness and on your engagement. So that's why wellbeing is the fourth of my six steps.
1: So step number five is about instilling pride. What does that mean in an organisation?
2: Well, it means that somebody, when they go into work, feels that they're doing something worthwhile And there are two ways that you can create that. There's the great story, isn't there, of JFK when he went to NASA before the moon landings and he had a lineup of people and he went along and he um, shook hands with the cleaner and he said, what do you do? He said, I'm putting a man on the moon. So it's that ability for every individual within an organisation to understand their role in the greater part, what that organisation is trying to achieve. And really good companies define that. The second is, what does a company do that genuinely brings purpose to the communities in which they trade. So when we were in Waitrose, or when I was in Waitrose, we launched the green token scheme. So if you shop in Waitrose, when you finish, you're given a green token, and then you post it for one of three charities. The great thing is the partners or the staff in that Waitrose branch decide each month what the three charities are, and then the money is divided by those three charities. It makes the customer feel good because they're doing something that's altruistic. It makes the partners feel good and it makes the charities feel good. It gives people a sense of pride. That's really what it's about.
1: So last but not least, and I love this one. Um, so step number six about job satisfaction. And you talk about two main areas for uh, contributing to people feeling satisfied at work. Personal development and the strength of your relationship with your line manager. What do we need to do in companies so people feel like they are developing personally, and so that they've got effective conversations and relationships with line managers. I mean, it's big, that area.
2: Well, it is because the number one reason people leave companies, 85% say they leave companies because of the relationship they don't have with their line manager. And for me, it's about line managers understanding the six steps and understanding what they need to do to be an engaging leader rather than uh, an authoritarian manager mm. and it's about thinking about how they would feel if they are treated in that way what you often find is it's managers that are most often concerned about the relationship they have with their line manager <laughs> so people are very good at looking the up irony. and saying um i wish my relationship with them was better And they never really reflect the other way so line management responsibility is very important and that's all about training and development of, of line managers career development is also really important it comes out very strongly for two groups in our survey. One is women, and particularly women under the age of 30, although it's also relevant to men under the age of 30, and the second group is to men in their 40s. The issue with men in the 40s and career development is they feel they've been cre- developed through their career, the world around them is changing, and they're not being equipped for the workplace of the future. So they tend to be anarchists. They've got to themselves to a place where they're not happy, they feel the world's moving against them, they recognise they have responsibilities and they're not quite sure how they're going to fulfil them. The second group is women, and there are three things. Women overall, I'm delighted to say, are happy in the men at work, have been for the last two years. But there are three areas where women are less happy. One, they feel that their careers are being developed less. The second is they feel information is shared less and their views are heard less. And the third is empowerment. They don't feel trusted. They don't feel as respected. It's certainly true that women, by and large, feel imposter syndrome more, mm. than, more than men. And in those instances, it's about listening. It's about having the confidence to give people trust and space and respect to do the job. And then when they do it well, making the point of recognising that they've done it well. If that were done with more women in work, the scores for women's happiness and work would be even higher compared to men. So just to
1: conclude this week's Squiggly Careers podcast, one thing that we like to ask all of our guests is your best piece of career advice. And I feel like you shared many all the way through. But is there anything that has really, really specifically guided you as a best piece of career advice that you would like to share with our audience?
2: So I, I would say there are two. One, the advice my dad gave me that everybody's different and everybody has a unique point of view but legitimately so and therefore taking the time to understand why I think that's been great advice and it's never made me think that I'm right and somebody else is wrong it's just made me think somebody else has got a different point of view I think the other one was my very first managing director when I started in John Lewis and I was in Southampton and there were five graduates that started in the department store at the same time and I was the last one to be promoted to the most junior management level I didn't think this was overly fair. So I went to see the managing director and I sat down and rather brazenly said that I didn't think this was fair. And he looked at me and said, Mark, you don't judge a career over a day or a week or a month or a year. You judge a career over a lifetime. He said, just get your head down, concentrate on your team, concentrate on doing your job well. Cream will rise to the top. And from that point, there isn't one job I've ever had that I've applied for. I have just constantly looked after my team, done the best for them. We've achieved great things together. I've enjoyed that. I've been so lucky that I've just been kept offering brilliant things to do. So I'm not sure it worked for everybody, but it certainly worked for me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to today's episodes. If you go to amazingif.com and you go to the podcast page, you'll find uh, links to lots of Mark's work, and I'll do a summary of the episode and some of the actions that he said. So it's all there for you if you want to kind of go and reflect on it after this conversation. If you have enjoyed this conversation today, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. It really helps us to reach more people and help more people with their squiggly careers, which is what we are all about. Next week, I'm back with Sarah. Hooray! And we're going to be talking about procrastination. We're talking about topics and Sarah said, I think we should tackle this one. So I don't know whether it's subtle feedback for me or not, but that is our topic for next week. So if you feel that maybe you've been putting a few things off, maybe you need to get some more motivation or work out why you're doing that, then next week's episode will be the one for you. Speak to you then, everybody. Bye.